My guest today has a remarkable background. He's an army ranger and battalion commander in the army's old guard, turned polyglot and scholar of ancient Near Eastern warfare, who has participated in America's post 9-11 wars in the Middle East, only now to study the somewhat arcane question of how wars used to work there in the Bronze Age and into the Iron Age. Except, and hear me out here, it's really not so arcane. For all of the advances in technology, for all the developments in culture, there were no Muslims or Christians back then, for example, for all of the pretty substantial changes the world has seen over the last 3,000 years, the patterns of conflict in the ancient Near East look a great deal like the patterns of conflict today in terms of how and where states project influence, where they come into contact, and where they do battle. Let's get into it. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. For maps, videos, and images, follow us on Instagram, and also feel free to follow me on Twitter at Aaron B. McLean. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thank you for joining School of War. I'm delighted to welcome to the show today Paul Edgar, who is the executive director of the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas, Austin. He's got a PhD in Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures from Texas, um, and he is a scholar of the warfare of the ancient Near East, which is a first for us here on School of War. He is also, I have to say, Paul, I want to ask you some questions about your, your life and your background, because before all of this, you served several decades in the U.S. Army as an infantry officer. And I, I've, I, I started the show a couple of years ago. I would always ask guests about their backgrounds and lives. Yeah. And because I have so many authors on the show, typically the responses would be, well, I grew up, I got a PhD, and I've been writing about this subject for 30 years. And they were, right. it was not the, they were not the most colorful portions of the interviews. In your case, however, you know, numerous deployments in wartime, indeed two, two wars, just service, combat service. You commanded a battalion of the Old Guard, which for those who don't know is, is the Army, the 3rd the, the Infantry Regiment, which is the regiment that performs ceremonial duties and security duties in Washington, D.C., and in that capacity, you, you supervise the soldiers who, who guard the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. So let me start here. You know, tell us about yourself, but in, in the course of that, explain how is it that an, not only an army officer, but an infantry officer just gets up one day and decides to become a scholar, and not just a scholar, but a scholar of the late Bronze Age? Take it All away. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. So, and I'll just, I'll start in college. You know, I, I actually have to, to laugh. So some of your listeners may be familiar with a, with a guy named Pete Blaber, and I won't go into Pete Blaber's history, but he was, he was very much the paradigm of, of Ranger and Delta operators, officers, a couple of decades ago. And I uh, saw a recent podcast that, that he was a guest on, and, and I think you can say this about so many of us, not, not all of us, but many of us in our late teens and 20s, but I'll, I'll quote Pete labor. I, I was not a model of scholastic excellence <laughs> as, a, as a high school student. And so I kind of bumbled into college, fortunately, right? I went to St. Mary's uh, University here in, in Texas in San Antonio. They were, uh, I think they were gracious to, to uh, grant me entrance. 
for, for a number of reasons, I joined ROTC after my first year. And my intent was not to stay in the Army, it was to do other things. But after my first kind of simulated combat patrol, I thought, boy, this is pretty cool. Maybe I'll do this. And then I learned about, uh, about the Ranger Regiment. And I said, that's really what I want to do. And fortunate, fortunately, I was, I was able to do, to do that. I finished, finished college, was commissioned through ROTC, went to Korea for a year, and then went to 2nd Ranger Battalion. And even at that point, I was thinking, I was just, all, all I wanted to do was be a Ranger platoon leader. That would satisfy, that would be my, the, the great satisfaction of my life. And then, and then I would uh, separate and, I don't know, do something else. But I worked for... Stanley McChrystal was the battalion commander at the time. Hmm. Tony Thomas, who, who commanded Delta and, and SOCOM, was the XO. Uh, Pete Blaber later uh, joined the battalion. Um, a lot of other names that, that you would recognize were in that unit. And it was, it was such a phenomenal time that, uh, that I decided to stay for a career. Um, um, and most of my time was spent as a, as a conventional paratrooper in, in airborne units. That was my only rotation through the Ranger Regiment. So I went to 173rd or what becomes the 173rd while I was there in Italy, an airborne brigade that we stood up from scratch in Alaska as part of sort of the growth of the army to, to, in order to manage the, the demand for forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. But that's, but that's sort of the point that sort of brings me to academia is a couple things. One is, is I severed my ACL, and so I was not able to go back into the special operations world. So I, so I had to look for something else. Hmm. And that ended up being uh, what's called the Olmsted Fellowship or Olmsted Scholarship, which is a pretty neat opportunity for kind of not quite mid-grade officers in each of the services. They sent, so they sent me to Israel to learn modern Israeli Hebrew and to get a master's degree. And, and my master's work was essentially in Jewish literature from, from the Iron Age. So maybe, you know, 700, 600 BC, BCE through the Crusades. And I studied some other things, but that was the kind of, that was the gist of it. While I was there, we invaded Iraq, and even you know, well before um, Secretary Rumsfeld allowed us to use the word counterinsurgency, most of us were talking very seriously counterinsurgency. We were reading Galula and, and many other things. So this is, this is as early as 2004, but, but both that time at Tel Aviv University and what I found was, was really... And I thought all of academia was like this at the time. I found since then that it's not. But there were a lot of academics that were producing work, and this is both historians and political scientists and linguists and others, anthropologists who who happened to be downrange with us and, and willing to, to to work with us. They were contributing to to my understanding of what was going on and how we could best address it. And you know, there's a bigger argument there whether whether or not that worked or not, I won't get into that, but, but I think it's more than fair to say that academics produced work and were willing to engage with us in a way that I found really profoundly helpful during those you know, really difficult years, particularly between 2004 and when I retired in 2014 with, you know, with, with a number of rotations and then cu kind of culminating with, with what I would consider 
you know, it's not the same war, but there's a similar conflict there working on the Israeli-Palestinian issues with United States Security Coordinator at my last year in the Army. So, so all of that prompted me to consider seriously a, a second career in academia because I wanted to be, I wanted to, you know, think about these things more deeply and then, and then be helpful to, you know, whether it's to soldiers or policymakers or the people in between, hoping that, that one, we could if we go to war, that we make the best possible decisions about going, to, uh, simply about that point, about deciding to go to war. And then two, when we are at war, to do that in a way that is, you know, we're talking about terrible things here, but within that context, doing things as well as possible to minimize human suffering, sort of political disorder, Etc. So, so that's that's kind of the background. I hope that that summarizes it. No, it's every now and then I have a guest on. It doesn't happen that often, but you and maybe Iskander Raman, there's a couple others who I think. Well, I mean, you're living my best life. How did how did you? This is sort of this ro- ro- romantic progress from the infantry to uh, to the Iron Age. I'd say, and here's a question for you. It, it strikes me as as very commendably broad-minded on the part of the Army or the Department of Defense, whoever is actually administering Olmstead, to to let you study. The Iron Age, which I, I mean, I'm all for it. And to me, it's sort of self-evident where the value would be. And clearly right. you're, the, you're the kind of guy who, who agrees. But, you know, my impression of the, of the administration of things like, I don't actually know anything about Olmsted, but my, my impression yeah. of the administration of things like this is there is a prejudice for more contemporary stuff, modern, you know, if you're right. going to learn about the Middle Eastern study, modern Middle Eastern studies, study, you know, international relations theory, you know, right. all that kind of stuff where there's probably some value depending on how you do it. And this notion that what you actually did would be, you know, at best an academic curiosity without much relevance. How is it? How is it that you were able to persuade them or did you kind of stumble into it? Well, you didn't need to. That was the nice thing. You know, the Olmsted, the Olmsted program and and General George Olmsted, who put his personal, you know, kind of fortune towards this back in the 60s. And it's worth, it's a digression so that I won't go into, but it's worth learning about General George Olmsted's personal background. And what led him to to think that this was something that that officers needed to do, not to be an area specialist, but to be better operators. the the whole The whole program is oriented not towards making regional specialists that then get put you know put somewhere as a desk officer, but to give you deep linguistic and cultural experience in in one area. So that if you have to do it again, you're deployed to war, or whatever, eat in another area, unrelated language, etc., that you recognize the environment, even if you don't recognize the details of uh, of the culture and the language immediately. Right. That, that's the idea, and yeah. and so the so really was broad minded from from the very beginning, and those who continue to run the foundation have maintained that 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 aspect of it and, and have been really supportive. So I didn't even need to convince them. A lot of people do. Uh, I would say a lot of Olmsted scholars do things that are more modern. And I think there, there's, you know, that's, that's natural, nothing necessarily wrong with that, depending on, you know, what it is that they're interested in. But I, I just felt like if I, if I'm in Israel with, you know, population of, of roughly seven, you know, 700 or 7 million, the, the, the Jewish state, that I should sort of that I should immerse myself very deeply 
in the things that 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 created this this people, right? And so you go you can go back further, certainly, but historically speaking, we can really you know we can really zero in on when this group of people, the Israelites, become a much narrower people, the Jews, and and that's the you know that's the Iron Age. So, Paul, I had a similar instinct to you. I was I was actually in college for you know nine eleven invasion of Iraq invasion of Afghanistan. I briefly considered joining the service at the time and ended up deciding not to because because we won. You right. know, we we invaded Iraq in what March of '03 and April Saddam statue came down and it was all over. And I thought, well, I missed that. But I had already. A lot of us were worried we missed it. Yeah, right. <laughs> why, why did we have something to learn? Exactly. <laughs> had nothing to worry about. It turns out. Oh, and then again, when I was actually in my battalion, we were our Iraq deployment. This is 2009. Was canceled. And then oh I, my uh, goodness. Yeah, I was. Oh, I missed. I, now I really missed it. I went to all this trouble and I really missed it. And again, yet again, it turns out. And then finally, when we got back from Afghanistan, I have a fond memory of sitting with my fellow lieutenants from my company on the beach, staring out at the ocean in North Carolina. And one of my good friends who's actually been a guest on the show, OC Best, saying, and, and you know, forgive my language, this is generally a family show, so, so mute, mute me now if you have kids listening, but, well, that fucking sucked. Why did you <laughs> want to do that so bad? As a memory is seared into me. Anyway, to the point, I had a, an opportunity to go to graduate school, and I chose to do medieval Arabic thought and pitch yeah. some people on letting me do medieval Arabic thought, yeah. and they, they were sold on very, a very similar conception is, is yours that, and also that I, I thought, you know, that not that modern Middle Eastern studies and everything that you learn there isn't important. Of course, it's at the end of the day, it, it isn't, it's, it's what you're going to do. If you're going to work on these issues, you're going to work on stuff that is that for which recent history is extremely relevant. But I also thought that that stuff would inherently be easier to just pick up and that it was the longer learning that required and or the, or the, 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 the more foundational learning that required right. an academic environment. There was nowhere I was going to read Islamic philosophy and early Islamic history yeah. other than academia. Yeah, And I, I sort of stand by, I, you know, it's practical impacts were, were limited in the sense that I, do, I was able to bluff my way out of a, of a dispute with some pro-Taliban mullahs once <laughs> by, by claiming that, that my interpretation of the Quran was superior to theirs, <laughs> which was partly a bluff, but I was working, I was operating on the principle that they were bluffing too, that they right. had no right. idea. They had memorized the Arabic, but they really didn't know what it meant. But, you know, it was more the framing, like the right. confidence in my understanding of, of the context and the system yeah. that, that, that justifies it. Okay, so... You know, I'm with you. I, I do think that, and, 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 again, not to, go, not to digress on certain things, but simply to summarize that, that I, I'm actually working on this with a, a few colleagues, but a, a humanist understanding of war, politics foreign affairs is is enormously helpful it's not just about sort of policy and data right yeah so let's let's talk about your work for a bit and then then we'll come back around to your career because i actually think that's a natural place to go is to what does this all mean for us here in the 21st century so and i i think it would be the best procedure here would be to start very broad and very big picture because i will confess even for myself as somebody who I'm, I'm, I'm actually for, formally qualified, Paul, to do only two things. I'm formally trained as, a, as an infantry officer, company-grade infantry officer, and I am formally trained as a handler of medieval Arabic texts with a right. concentration in philosophy. Those are my two qualifications. So even somebody with that nerdy dimension, uh, your scholarship precedes what I know about the Middle East by some 2,000 years at least. Yeah. What is the late Bronze Age 
what did the Middle East look like? Like, just give us a bit of a, of a picture of the world at that time that you focus on. So, so may, maybe it's also worth even uh, before that to try to summarize how we even learned about these things, because for uh, historically, um, our understanding of of politics and war begins more or less with Herodotus. You can go a little bit earlier if, if if people are comfortable using the Hebrew Bible. You can you can kind of pick and choose a couple of things before that, but but broadly and fundamentally, our understanding of of war and politics begins with Herodotus, and that's because a lot of this material that that I'm I've been fortunate to use was was still undiscovered or had been lost and was still undiscovered until it's kind of a this is a coincidence the. I haven't seen it yet, but the Joaquin Phoenix film of uh, Napoleon, right, just came out. So, so I, I, I saw it. We just we just did a, an episode with Alexander. Okay, Vinicius cool. We're going to bring it. students. I hope I'm not mis- making a mistake, but we're going to bring a bunch of students on Wednesday night to an <laughs> IMAX showing of it. Hopefully, I, there's enough. I have a take. My take is if you just see it as long delayed British propaganda, <laughs> it, it works great. And it's actually quite entertaining. If you go in expecting something else, you'll be disappointed. Okay. Right. Well, I hope there's at least one or two war and statecraft lessons there that I can tease out. But uh, so, so Napoleon's expedition to Egypt, right? In, in you know, just for just so we had work with round numbers in in 1800 or about 1800, his expedition to to Egypt, where he gets where the British the the British take out his fleet. And so he can't return the way he had anticipated. And so he kind of marches up, up the, the more or less the coast of the Levant doesn't make it to Jerusalem, but, but sends, you know, sends messages. We usually consider that. And he brought a number of academics with him to, to kind of tease out some of these things. And, and I think that it prompted a, a, a real interest in, 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 the ancient Near East in ways that had not occurred before. Plus, you know, the, the political conditions were right. The, the Ottoman Empire was was weak, and and so it was easier to go in and do archaeological digs than maybe it would have been a hundred years before, two hundred years before. But but anyways, the the interest and capacity to do this to to you know to do archaeological exploration was it just sort of caught fire for more than 100 years. A lot of this was privately funded. Some of it was publicly funded or it was kind of jointly funded, but a lot of it was private and it was it was British and German and and French and and Italian, but everybody was getting on board. It's sort of like colonialism. Everybody everybody thought that they should be involved with the archaeology as well as, you know, they should have some colonies somewhere. So so it was kind of a piece of that world. But we we discovered or, or we, we discovered so much. It began with Egypt, Egyptian hieroglyphs or what we normally refer to as Middle Egyptian and an understanding and a de- deciphering that language and that writing system. But then we found all these cuneiform tablets of, of Sumerian and Akkadian, and nobody knew what these things were. And it took decades for for scholars to, one, to find it, and then we continue to find those things, right? To find those things, decipher the language, 
and then and then catalog all of the different tablets that the cuneiform tablets that we found into in different languages and and then once you kind of catalog all those things then you're in a position where you can kind of sort out the history and a lot of the and, and kind of which documents are history which documents are receipts which documents are kind of arcane laws and 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 omens but so so anyways we're all we're still kind of at the forefront of piecing this part of history together because i would i would argue that only for a few decades or or maybe 50, you know maybe 50 60 years have we been in a position to 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 begin synthesizing the the historical material from not just from the late bronze age but but much earlier to to piece that together and and develop what at least what in academia we might call a synthetic history and that doesn't mean it's artificial it's just it means that you're you know you're stitching together a variety of sources to put together a something that's a bigger picture and so so I'll start you know kind of starting with that that only recently did we know it, any of this stuff existed and it took a while to sort out and we're now in a position that we can develop the history and understand that history and in a way that we didn't and and so of course like i said before we started with herodotus and now we can go back further so can i can i just interject yeah and, yeah, yeah of course at the risk of taking us really off track yeah <laughs> maybe this whole episode will just be the prelude and then we'll we'll record another episode but this is fascinating to me so how how do our earliest, te- you cite Herodotus, the, the, te- the foundational texts for us, the, the texts that begin our understanding yeah. of the history of the Mediterranean, the Near East, etc. So Herodotus, but also, you know, you have Thucydides' archaeology, right? There's that sort of his his essay on on prehistory. You've got the Bible, you've got the Hebrew Bible. You know, how, how do they hold up, I guess? I mean, that's a huge question. Right, um, right, right. Uh, but like, how, how does, how do the accounts of prehistory in these different yeah. documents hold up in light of the kind of collated evidence right. that you are working on. So 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 one of the big I will say that one of the big motivations early on was to of these archaeological expeditions was to verify the historicity of of the Hebrew Bible, right? And as these things went on, people started studying Akkadian, Sumerian, Hittite, etc in, in their own right and for their own sakes. But that was that was a big part of what uh, drove this interest initially so 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 I'll I'll say I'll say this that what we call the iron age roughly 1100 or 1000 BC or BCE through gosh I'm not even sure when we you know when we end the iron age because it's to me that's like that's that's so recent right <laughs> but, uh, but, but we usually call it instead of saying the end of the iron age I think usually we call it sort of the late late antiquity the Greek and Roman era so, so between about twelve or eleven hundred uh, BCE and 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 the eighth century, around seven fifty or so, or eight hundred um, BCE, there's just a, a real lack of materials uh, in the Levant that help us put these things together. So, unless and the uh, the oldest copies of the Hebrew Bible we have are just a um, you know. If we go to Qumran, we're we're talking two hundred ish, right? BCE. So so there's a there's about a six hundred year gap between between or, or longer 
between our copies of the Hebrew Bible and the things that they record. Right. Right. So, so this is one of, for, for biblical scholars, this is one of the, the questions is how it's a, it's a question that, um, that remains. Uh, I would say less people are interested in it now than they were, I don't know, many decades ago, or certainly in, in the 1800s, but, but it's still of, of interest. And, and the field kind of flops, flips, you know, kind of flip-flops back and forth right now. And I think it's fair. I, I think this is a fair assessment is that right now, I think there's a reasonable amount of confidence that, that David and Solomon were, you know, were real kings, were real kings of, of something like a united monarchy, that maybe the extent sometimes of the kingdom that, that is, that's described in the Hebrew Bible isn't, isn't the precise boundaries because it, sometimes it's it's pretty vast all the way to Mesopotamia, right? So, so, and I'm not sure. You know, I, I, some people would say that that's just propaganda, and but but I'm just not sure we always conceive of things in the same term. So, so I'm not ready to jump on the propaganda bandwagon at this point. But but anyways, all, all that to say is that as we go, we find little bits of material and textual evidence that seem to indicate yes. David was a real king, Solomon was a real king. And then after that, certainly when you get into the ninth century and the eighth century, we start to have, and once you get to Hezekiah in the late, late eighth century and Sennacherib, the Assyrian, uh, and then now you can start to stitch together history very, uh, very confidently, right? There's lots of details that are missing, but you're very confident about, about sort of the, or the progression of kings who invaded who, who, who paid tribute to who, who was kind of subordinated to, to who, what were, what were some of the s- political struggles? Those things, we can, I think we can be very confident in that, that the Hebrew Bible captures it pretty well. When you talk about the patriarchs, uh, you know, that stuff is, it's, it's lost, and I don't think it'll be found. I may be wrong, I may be wrong, but, but, but I think those things will will never be corroborated just because the kind of history that it captures and the era of history and the and the people that it captures didn't produce the the kind of material that would corroborate their existence and and that sort of thing so right how's, how's that how's that as a, as a digression well, it's, it's a, i mean we could we could talk for yeah. hours more on this and i think that would be ultimately a disservice to the show which is after all <laughs> called school of war not school of, of Aaron and Paul's, you know, <laughs> ongoing curiosity. Musings. Uh, musings, yeah. But so I, I'm going to drive us towards war, but this is fascinating. So, look, I, I, I'm I inclined to take us to the Bronze Age because you yeah. you, you wrote this great article, which folks can, can just look up online, A Most Ancient Statecraft, the Dreamy Statue Inscription, which as, as an act of marketing, the title perhaps does not do justice to. It's actually fascinating as a, as a sort of overview of if you like the 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 international system of the late Bronze Age near right. East, tell us about yeah. this world. How did this world work? Right. So 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 let me let me signpost for the reader or the listener is that we we talked about kind of the finding and decipherment of the materials that lead to our understanding of this history. We talked a little bit about the the era after the one that I study the most. That's the so we talked about the Iron Age, which which is the, the era of the production of uh, most, if not all, of of the Hebrew Bible. And now we're going back further, and this would be the time, you know, sort of this, this would be the time of the Exodus and the patriarchs, if we're using the Hebrew Bible as a, as a, as something to relate it to. 
and this is normally called and for we're we're kind of stuck with the convention it's not always the best convention or the most helpful but uh, we talk about it in terms of the late bronze age and that's roughly 1600 bce through you could go 1200 or or, or 1100 bce and this you know this is a very distinct political era and this is one of the reasons why I studied it when I when I learned that this was very much a, a distinct beginning, kind of beginning, a rise, a, a golden age, and then a collapse of of a international political system, and that this this was an era, this was a really unique political era in and of itself. That's what one of the things that drew me to to study it. That, and, and it's convenient too, right? Because as a story, it has kind of this beginning, middle, and end, right? So, so, but that's roughly the time frame we're looking at. Geographically, what we're looking at is is Mesopotamia, right? So, so Iraq, modern day Iraq. Um, uh, we're not yet uh, Persia does not yet enter the equation. Um, that's later. That's right. That's with uh, the Achaemenid period, or uh, you know, Herodotus cover some of that but but Persia is not yet a player in the in the ancient near east so we go from the from Mesopotamia kind of southwest to Egypt up the the coast of the Levant into Syria and then Anatolia or modern day Turkey the Kur, you know what we would consider today Kurdistan was also involved and I'll, I'll address that with one particular kingdom in a second, but but that's the geographic. Those that's sort of the geographic boundaries of this international system. Now they related to other parts of the world, right? We've got we've got lots of evidence that there was there was certainly connection with the rest of the Mediterranean. We've got we've got uh, evidence that there was that there was trade even as far as as India, the, those sorts of things. But but they were not what we might consider sort of major players in this international world. The, so the so we talked the time frame geographic boundaries this what we would consider the states the major states in this in this world there the era begins more or less with with what we would we could call three great powers and and we don't need to talk too much about what a great power is just for for the for the purposes of a podcast so consider them you know they're substantial powers that that have a capacity to project military and significant military and and political influence across the region the geographical region that i described so those three states are hatti or the hittites in anatolia egypt and and mitanni and mitanni is is the kingdom that roughly would be in the area that that we might consider kurdistan today so those are the great powers then you have lots of uh, of of city states or kind of what might be little more than city states in in some cases in between at the beginning of the era these the, these major powers they tend to be they tend their influence tends to be isolated to their kind of geographic homeland and the areas that border but then as as they gain power and ambition and capacity and as as their own domestic situation allows they're able to extend that power right and extend that influence and mitanni collapses so mitanni after a couple hundred years 
really almost evaporates, which is, a, I won't go into the story, but and so what, you're in, what you end up with for a big chunk of the, the late Bronze Age is just two great powers, Hatti and Egypt. And they expand, Hatti expands south, and Egypt expands north, and they, they run into each other in, in what today is, is southern Syria. They have a, a three-day battle, which, which is mostly a stalemate. So this is, in, this is the, the early 13th century. They, they battle to a stalemate. And Egypt has, if, if our historical records are, are accurate, Egypt has a little bit of an upper hand, but nothing, you know, nothing that is politically significant. And, and then and we can't trace this day by day or month by month or, or year by year, but, but about 10 years later, we have a treaty between the two. So sometime between that major battle and this treaty, they, you know, the, the leaders of those two powers had to grapple with what was it that they were going to do. And let me, let me kind of add to the, the, the story a little bit by describing in what is today really Alawite Syria, that, that's sort of that, that portion of Syria that is, that is predominantly Alawite. That was a, a state or a country, a small, a small country called, or a small state called Ugarit, from which uh, you may be familiar with the, the language Ugaritic, but that was the most important port city and, and sort of transit point of, of, of commerce between the Mediterranean and, and, ancient, and you know, ancient Near East, Levant, Syria, and Mesopotamia. So it was hugely um, lucrative, and both Egypt and Hatti wanted, you know, wanted to have, wanted to exercise substantial influence over that part of, that part of the region. And it's not too far from there that they have their three-day three day battle. But in any case, uh, the, just to demonstrate that there was real interest here, right? There was real economic interest. Somehow, though, between that three-day battle and the treaty, they figured, you know, they, they sort of assessed their options and they had to make choices about whether they doubled down militarily or whether they try to work this out in, in a way, in a diplomatic way so that you know, ideally, this is kind of a win-win for both Hatti and Egypt. And I think that's what you get, really, is you get a, a couple hundred years of this real stable international system because the two great powers are capable of getting, getting along with one another. And so I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and pause there. And Yeah, well, I, look, I mean, there's so many directions we could yeah. go from here. I suppose, let me take us from politics sort of down to, to operations and, and tactics right. to the extent that you can speak to these things in any level of detail. How did they fight? How did it work? This is, so this is, this is a, a little bit difficult because many of our, you know, we've got, we have textual evidence, right? Stories of how these, these armies fought. And we also have, for, for lack of a better term, we have artistic evidence. And then we also have some, we have some archeological evidence of, of battlefields. But the, the textual evidence and sort of the, the iconography or the, uh, the art that depicts these, these battles place the king over, you know, sort of really at the center of the story. And um, there, it's, it's their sort of hugeness, their boldness, and their 
they're great, not just their, you know, not just their leadership, not just their like ability to command. In fact, there's very little about command. It's about them personally trampling the opposing force, right? On their majestic horse. And it's, it's usually larger than life. Is that not how it went for you, Paul? (laughs) No, I was relying largely (laughs) on the people around me and and hopefully I was helpful. So, (laughs) so, so, so in terms of, of how the battle occurred, I'm not sure we can really say other than, uh, other than from other evidence. And frankly, just that we know that, that hand-to-hand combat with, with, you know, at, at most swords and spears and arrows, that it was that it was bloody and and personal and just chaos. So so there may have been more more organization to it, but it's hard to decipher in the in the materials and the texts that we have. I will say that you know one of the one of the things that we have is a really interesting Hittite t- text on how to train horses. You know, so this is this is kind of an era where 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 horses are being widely domesticated. And there's some argument on where that actually begins, but but there's a Hittite, there's a very long Hittite text. And essentially it looks like a, it's like a training calendar, right? If, if, if anybody who's who spent any time in the military and has set up a training calendar for a week or a month or, or a quarter would look at this text and say, this is, a, this is exactly what it is. It's a training calendar for how you train your horses for, for combat. So, pretty, it's, so it's pretty interesting. So there's, there was a level of organization that we don't know about and because the texts just don't record it in that way. Chariots were were a thing, were they? Were they not? Do I, yeah, do I but you know, but, but again, here we're in this weird position because it'll describe it'll describe in terrain that was completely unsuitable for for fast movement, right? It will it will describe the king in his chariot, and, and again, the the, the art uh, that we have that depicts these battles, the the king will be the giant king will be in a giant chariot and trampling all his foes right and then the smaller chariots and and helpers are kind of behind him so so yeah chariots were there but i, I i'm not sure i you know, people have written about this hmm. and i'm just not convinced anybody's gotten it right yet i think that it was probably helpful in repositioning a little bit you know repositioning some archers that sort of thing but but it wasn't anything like a tank battle right it's yeah. like which is which is how movies like to to capture it. That's not. I, I just I don't think that that was possible based on their technology and the terrain they were fighting on. Can I ask? I realize these are sort of dumb questions for for somebody who's. There's been never a dumb question. A long time. Well, that's a very polite thing for you to say. Um, th- there is a sufficient diversity of technology yeah. documented for the period. You know, you mentioned bows and arrows, spears, yeah. swords, horses. Right. You know, there's enough different kinds of stuff that you can move around and kill people with that you would you would almost expect as you're going to go try to figure this out that there would be some kind of combined arms dimension right. to this. Right. That, that it can't just be mass a under this king encounters right. mass b under that king and then they just have a melee there's you would, it would i mean i guess theoretically you could but it would it yeah. seems strange that it would not have occurred to somebody there to like try to separate this yeah. out a bit so i mean it sounds like yeah. you would, like how do you how how would we even try to piece together more from, from let, let me actually let me instead I'll address that but let me instead 
addressed that there are indicators that people were thinking through these things. I just don't think that we can sew it all together, right? Yeah, I mean, may, maybe it's my, you know, my, maybe I just haven't discovered the materials yet, or, or if it's, maybe it's in front of me and I just haven't seen it yet. But, and, and, and so there's, uh, there's a, there's an Egyptian, and this is actually before the, this is Egyptian text before the, the late Bronze Age, where, where one of the protagonists talks about his plans, right? That his plans are so great that he's going to defeat his opponent. Hmm. And, and to me, that's, that's one of these early uh, indicators that there was, there really was a strategy of a sort, that there really was thoughtfulness to how I was going to go about this and, 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 and outthink my, my enemy with the, you know, the tools of war that I do have. So, so I do think that, that people were doing exactly what you described, but I'm not, but I don't think we have discovered the texts or we have, or maybe we haven't properly interpreted or understood the texts that, that reveal these things. The, the, you know, the, the texts on training a horse is another example. So, so we know that people were really putting some thought into these things, but, but how it, how they s stitched it together in terms of a combined arms effort, which I'm sure they did in, in we might consider it a rudimentary way, but it's absolutely still, you know, still a, some sort of way. I'm not sure we can put that together yet. So, I mean, I can continue to, to talk to you about this stuff for hours. Maybe you would come back and we can, we can keep doing that sometime. But let me, as promised, let me try to sort of bring it back around to the present day. And you can talk, whether it's operations or strategy or politics, yeah. take it in any direction you want. But, you know, of course, we are talking about a part of the world that is, I mean, it's at war right now in multiple ways and in multiple places. Some of these wars, you have the Syrian civil war in particular, is absolutely savage. Right. What happened in Israel two months ago, you know, just utter, utter savagery on October the 7th. So there, there is a, a kind of character to warfare in this part of the world in recent years that, that, that does not seem to give much evidence for the notion that things are getting more humane right. and, and more, quote unquote, modern as, as the years go on. There seems to be a flaw in that idea. So... What what continuities do you see? What parallels with all of your study of, of 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 truly ancient history, more ancient than what most people mean by ancient history? What 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 have you learned about this part of the world, and perhaps about warfare and politics right. more generally that matters today? So so a few things. One is the and I mentioned before that the, that Alawite, you know, that Alawite Syria almost matches the the borders of Alawite Syria and Ugari are. Are almost identical, and and so to me, that's an indicator that geography influences us. You know that that even geography at a low level influences us and our movements and the things that we're interested in, and and our capacity to grow and project societies and states, etc. That those things influence us in ways that that we don't even realize. So so I do think that. That, and maybe that's just one way of saying geopolitics is still a real thing. It's certainly not the only thing, and geopolitics is not, you know, not sort of fate or determinative in an absolute sense, but it's hugely influential in, in ways that, that we may not even perceive. Just the, again, that the, that the limits of, of a society in the late Bronze Age mirror the limits of a society in, in this age is is at least 
you know, at least raises some suspicion that, that is worth investigating. No, number two is the is that political order, I guess, political order on an international level. And yeah, I, in fact, there's evidence at the domestic level as well, but from these texts, but that international order is is created and sustained by by willing partners that and that it's not something that we can ever take for granted and and this kind of goes to the you know what i'm thinking of right now is the collapse of of the late bronze age and there are a number of things that that lead to to it like most major events in in international history there's more than one factor involved but one of the prominent ones for the, the collapse of, of, of this international system was this migration or invasion of, of what we normally refer to as the Sea Peoples. And the, the Philistines, the Peleset in, in Egyptian texts, are, are part of that, part of that wave of, of people from the Mediterranean that, that just starts showing up and laying waste to anything on the coast. We, we don't know if there was some kind of some method to it. There may have been, but it's, again, it's, it's a mystery to us at this point. It's lost to us at this point. But that's, those societies were not ready for it. And they could have been. You know, there's no reason why, there's no reason why the Hittites and the Egyptians in the late Bronze Age, if they, if they worked together, that they could not have prevented their own collapse. So I guess those are the two things that, that really occur, or those are the few things that, a few of the things that, that occur to me that, that are true today, right? That, that political order is maintained by those who are, who are collectively committed to maintaining it. That it doesn't have to be in a, that, that political order, international political order does not need to be an oppressive thing. It can be, there are certainly going to be limits and constraints and that sort of thing, but it can still be mutually beneficial not just to the great powers, but to everybody in between. And, and you see that with the text, the, uh, these, these smaller powers were frequently, there were moments when they were, when they were warring with Egypt, that usually to no, to no avail, but when they were at war with Egypt or, or Hati, and there were times when Egypt and Hati would, would kind of put them under their thumb. But they were also, just like we see today, people ask the United States to get involved. People ask Great Britain to get involved. They ask Australia to get involved to help them out with, with whatever international problem they're facing. And so, so that was the dynamic then, too, is we have so many letters, so many diplomatic, you know, these are cables or these are diplomatic letters, the equivalent in cuneiform and on tablets, but it's the same thing. And they're writing in a different lingua franca, but they're asking for help. They're asking for military assistance. They're asking for uh, for favor relative to their hostile neighbors. So, 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 so. Anyway, that that international order doesn't simply need to benefit the the great powers, but it can be mutually beneficial to everyone involved. Paul Edgar of the Clements Center, the University of Texas at Austin. This has been a truly fascinating conversation. I hope you come back sometime and continue it. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks, Eric. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.